You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 2 this morning. And so if you have your Bible, you can make your way to 1 John 2. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that Elise just mentioned, page 1021 is where you'll find today's text. Some years back, uh, I heard a pastor named Matt Carter say something that has stuck with me ever since. Uh, And I I should set this up a little bit. I I wasn't expecting to hear something profound in this moment. Matt was pastoring a larger church that's part of the Acts 29 network that we're part of. And he was talking about, of all things, his hiring process. And so I was thinking, okay, this is going to be helpful. I'm going to learn a lot. I'm, you know, haven't hired a lot of people in my life and he has. I'm going to There's going to be some beneficial things from this. I wasn't thinking this is going to be a memorable moment. Uh, Some of you might love HR way more than I do, just kind of really get a lot of life out of that. But HR and hiring processes, Steve loves it. He was just about to give a woo right there. I saw him. (laughs) But I don't. don't, It does not stir my soul to talk about hiring processes. Nonetheless, as Matt was talking, he said that when he was considering bringing someone onto their church staff, onto their team, there was one primary question that he would always ask. One question that weighed more than all the other questions, and it was this. When was the last time the thought of the gospel made you weep? When was the last time the thought of the gospel made you weep? See, the the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners, is so often assumed by Christians once they become Christians in particular, it's so often seen as the entry point, the 101 kind of class that then we move past as we become Christians. But Matt wanted a sense of how much of a present reality Jesus and his work was to a prospective employee. And not just that someone would, would grasp the gospel mentally, but that they had actually taken the gospel, the work of Jesus, into their soul. That the beauty and worth of Jesus and the beauty and worth of what he had done had become woven deeply into the fibers of their being. And so he actually would not, he got to a point where he would not hire someone unless they, number one, understood the question, is the gospel actually moving you at an emotional level? Sometimes, not every day, but is it actually moving you at times? So did they understand the question? Number two, could they offer a sincere answer? The gospel is good news. It's a simple but very profound truth. The gospel is good news, and it is the ultimate expression of God's goodness to sinners. But it is something so foundational, so central, and so core to the Christian faith that in in a series like this where we're contemplating the goodness of God, we're actually prone to skip right over it. We're we're prone to demand more evidences of goodness. We're kind of like an entitled kid opening Christmas or birthday presents, and we open the present, we're like, okay, what else? What's What's next? So this morning, let's, let's slow down long enough to savor a little bit and to see. Not that you have to be moved to tears this morning. That's not the litmus test that we're kind of like, we're not laying out a fleece that says you only get the gospel if you cry today. Okay, I don't want to put that pressure on you. No judgment. But let's seek to have our eyes opened. Let's seek to have our souls stirred. Let's seek to be renewed in astonishment about God's goodness to sinners. Let me pray for us and then... We'll dive into John, 1 John 2. Father, we ask that right now you would even overwhelm us by the beauty and the worth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like the men and women who came to Philip in John chapter 12, we would see Jesus. 
And so we ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would give us eyes to see his greatness, to see his goodness even now, to see him in all of his worth. Give us eyes right now to see your goodness to sinners like us. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is 1 John chapter 2, and I'm reading verses 1 through 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And this is God's word. There are a hundred, if not more, passages that we could simmer in to consider God's goodness to sinners. But here in 1 John chapter 2, we have two really powerful tastes of God's goodness. And we're going to spend the rest of our time exploring those two. They are advocacy and assurance. Advocacy and assurance. So first, advocacy. In other words, that Jesus is our advocate. If we were to go back and start at the beginning of 1 John chapter 1, the start of this letter, we would read how John has been describing Jesus' response to sinners. And we would have read that Jesus is the one who cleanses us from sin. That's chapter 1, verse 7. And we would have read that Jesus forgives those who sin. That's chapter 1, verse 9. Now here at the chapter of start, uh, start of chapter 2, Jesus is the one who advocates as well. In the book Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland devotes an entire chapter to this idea that Jesus is our advocate. Uh, quoting John Bunyan a handful of times in that chapter, we see how this is related and yet distinct from some of Jesus' other roles. So Jesus, of course, is also a reconciler. He makes peace between God and humanity. And Jesus is an intercessor. Uh, he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he mediates for us. He stands in the middle between God the Father and us, and he says, these people are mine. My work counts on their behalf. And all of that, just that, is beyond incredible. It's beyond incredible. But Jesus as an advocate is actually one step further. As an advocate, see, Jesus steps out of the middle. He steps out of the middle, and he steps over to our side. He takes up our case. He stands with us. So think of a, a medical advocate, a, a friend or a family member who makes sure that a patient is getting the absolute best care that they can get. Or think of an advocate for a child who's in the foster care system. They're not neutral. They're not neutral. They're not just bringing two different parties together to facilitate a conversation. An advocate is someone who actually takes a side. And if you've ever had someone advocate for you, then you know the difference between these two things. You have a feeling sense, I would imagine, of the difference between these two things. I can think of a handful of times in my life where I've felt very unfairly criticized, thrown under the bus, even slandered in an instance or two. In those moments, I really do appreciate people who make space for conversations and who can serve as peacemakers and bring 
parties together. I think that's a necessary role to say, okay, something's happened here. We need to bring you guys together to talk about this. But I feel loved and valued and cared for in such a deeper way when someone actually has stepped out of the middle and stepped next to me and said, hey, this is Matt, and I'm going to lend my credibility. I'm going to lend my reputation to him in this moment. I'm not just going to be neutral. I'm not just going to make a conversation happen. I'm with him. I appreciate facilitators. I appreciate moderators, but I treasure an advocate treasure and advocate. And I'll never forget the times where in a critical moment, someone stepped out of that middle and stood next to me. And Christian, I want you to hear this morning, that is who Jesus Christ is for you. That is what Jesus does for you. Jesus, who has all the credibility in the universe. He is the peacemaker. He is the intercessor. He's the one who bridges the otherwise unbridgeable chasm that exists between us and God because of our sin. But he is also an advocate. He steps out of the middle to stand next to you in your sin. Unlike interceding, which Jesus, the author of Hebrews tells us, does continually, he's always interceding for us, Jesus advocates for us situationally. So it's not all the time. What are the situations? When is it that Jesus is advocating? Well, John says there in verse 1, it's when we sin. It's when we sin. See, it's not... uh, we know that we're not supposed to sin. That's kind of, that maybe that's the 101. Maybe that's the entry point of Christianity, right? We're not supposed to sin. We're not supposed to reject God and, and, and reject his design or his commands. And John is writing here, he's writing this letter, so many texts in scripture are written, that we might know God and know his commands so that we can actually follow them. But try as we might, we are not sinless. We're not sinless and we never will be In this life. And so John has written just a few verses earlier in chapter 1, verse 8 if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The minute we think we're saying, okay, sin's a past tense thing for me, I don't do that anymore, we're 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 foolish. We've deceived, we're liars. We've kidded ourselves. And how this relates to the series that we're in right now about the goodness of God, if you want to know the goodness of God, try being good yourself for a while. And I mean, really try. Bleed and sweat exerting yourself to do all of the right things in all the right moments. And then actually step back and and be honest with how far short you're falling. Even the most disciplined, self-controlled person in the world will sin all of the time by omission. You can become so focused on not doing the things you shouldn't do that you forget to do the things you must do. You're so focused on not sinning, you you forget to actually be present with other sinners and love them to lay down your life for others. Now, a few verses after this, John's going to write about the promise we have as God's people of future sinlessness. He's going to say in chapter three, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him. We'll be be like him because we shall see him as he is. So we're not perfect now. We have sin. That's chapter one. Chapter three, we will be sinless someday when we see Jesus. In the meantime, here in chapter two is some necessary realism for us, some faithful realism. Hey, fellow Christians, John says, don't sin, but when you do, because you will, remember that you have Jesus Christ as an advocate. See, it's not that Jesus takes our side when we deserve it. 
even when we are followers of his, even when we become Christians. It's not the moments in our lives that we deserve it that Jesus stands next to us. It's in the very moments that we least deserve it. It's when we're least qualified. It's in the moments where if we were expecting Jesus to step out of the middle and to take a side in this, we would expect him to stand against us and not with us. But this is where we have to let our natural assumptions about who God is over many years fall away and slowly be replaced by God's insistence on who he actually is. We actually have to learn to take God at his word. When we sin, he does not stand against us. He stands with us. Now, what is it that that qualifies Jesus to do that? What What is it that qualifies Jesus to be our advocate? Well, John writes here that he is both righteous and the propitiation. So so he is the righteous one. He is holy and perfect. He's without sin. And at the same time, he became, this big word there, the propitiation. And that word means satisfaction. Satisfaction, that Jesus satisfied a perfect God's demand for justice. That, That God had to do something to deal with sin and all of the corruption of his good world that it brought. But rather than bring judgment, Rather than bring justice against you and me, who are the the sinners who did corrupt the world, who brought about that corruption, Jesus took our sin upon himself. And John continues here, not only our sin did he take upon himself, but the sins of the whole world. The whole world. Now, if you were to read verses in any direction in 1 John, you'd quickly see John is not a universalist. He's not saying Jesus' work automatically counts for anybody regardless of how they respond. But he is saying here that the death of Jesus on the cross is sufficient to pay for all the sins of all the world. All the sins that have been committed, all the sins that are being committed right now in this millisecond, all the sins that will be committed in your life and in the lives of everybody else. Jesus' death is sufficient to pay for all of it. And it does pay for every sin for all who come to him. And it's Jesus' propitiation specifically that allows him to be our advocate when we sin. Why? Why is that truth so important for Jesus being our advocate? It's because he's already paid for that sin. When we sin, it's already been paid for. He doesn't have to stand against us demanding justice and punishment, nor does he have to even stay neutral and camp out in the middle and say, oh God, I know they messed up again, please forgive them. He can actually step over and stand with us and say, this is actually what I came into the world to die for. This, this for you. I like how Dane Ortland put it in Gentle and Lowly. He says, your salvation is not merely a matter of a saving formula, but a saving person. It's not just that the math checks out. There, there is a legal demand for justice that Jesus meets. That's the whole idea of justification. There's a great exchange that happens where we get his sinlessness. He takes our sin upon. The math works, but it's so much more than math. It's a person And Dan Orland continues, when you sin, his strength of resolve rises all the higher. When his brothers and sisters fail and stumble, he advocates on their behalf because it is who he is. He cannot bear to leave us to fend for ourselves. So how warped is it? How backward do we get this when we think we have to advocate for ourselves? That when we sin, that Jesus is siding against us rather than with us. See, if that's our view, then when we sin, because we will, we immediately begin advocating for ourselves. 
And that can take a couple different forms. We, we either start to pretend that we're way better than we actually are. We start to compare ourselves with others and say, well, relatively speaking, I'm better than that person, so that's good enough. We point to all of our successes. We ignore all of our shortcomings. We minimize our sin and our failures. Or, or, or maybe simultaneously, we lower the bar of God's standards so that we can actually meet it. That's the other way we advocate for ourselves. We just kind of adjust the standard down to what we're able to meet ourselves. So I want you to hear me this morning, men and women. Some of you have never actually tasted the goodness of Jesus Christ's advocacy. Some of you have never given up advocating for yourself. And you you might say you trust Jesus as your savior, but you've always been shrinking back from trusting him as your advocate. It's like if, if you're a climber. I'm not. That's probably obvious to everyone. I have no strength in my hands to hold myself up on a rock like that. But if you're a climber or you do like a high ropes course or something like that, you will never actually know the strength of the rope until you let it hold all of your weight, until you stop trying to help. If you want to learn to trust, so this whole subtitle of our series that we're in right now, right? Learning to trust the goodness of God. If you want to learn to trust the goodness of God, let go. Let go. Stop advocating for yourself. We think that we're doing ourselves a favor. We think we're helping by being our own advocates. But all we're doing actually is robbing ourselves of a deeper experience of the goodness of God. He's even better than you think he is if you're advocating for yourself. I want want you to consider this morning, where are you still advocating for yourself in your life? What sin are you minimizing? What what kind of ongoing sin in your life are you maybe not even talking about at all? Because you're just not really sure that Jesus would handle that until you clean it up a little bit yourself. And here's what I would ask of you. As a concrete step toward trusting Jesus as your advocate, share that with somebody you trust this week. Share that with a family member, a friend. Share that with one of our elders, pastors here. Share that with somebody. Take a step into the light and ask that person to help you see the advocacy of Jesus for you in that dark and shameful place that you've been too afraid to talk about up to this point. That's a really scary and really vulnerable ask. I know. know. Believe me, I know. But it is really critical for us if we're going to learn to trust the fullness of God's goodness. If we're going to see the fullness of his goodness to sinners like you and me. Jesus is not just the one who cleanses and forgives. Praise God, he is absolutely that. But he is the one who, when we do sin, when we continue to sin, even after we've come to faith in him, he's the one who advocates for us. He's that good. He's that good. And the gospel is that you are a great sinner. Jesus is a greater savior. We could also say that the gospel is that you are a great sinner. Jesus is a greater advocate. He's a greater advocate. So taste the goodness of his advocacy, maybe in a way that you never have before in your life. So advocacy is one of the two big evidences of God's goodness that we see towards sinners in this passage. The second one is assurance. Assurance. And one of our hearts, one of our soul's deepest struggles, at least for me, maybe this is true for you too, One of the primary reasons that we keep trying to advocate for ourselves in moments when we sin is because we're insecure. It's because we're not quite fully convinced that Jesus' work actually counts on our behalf. 
We're not quite persuaded that we actually do belong to him, especially in those moments themselves when we are still sinning. Twice in this text, John writes, by this we know, or by this we may know. And that is the language of assurance. Assurance. He's saying, not only is the gospel this objective truth that we trust, it of course is an objective truth that we hang our lives upon, but he's saying here, there's actually a subjective way for us to experience assurance. We might actually know that we actually are united with Jesus, that we actually are in him. And what is that way? It's obedience. It's obedience. Verse three, if we keep his commandments. Verse five, if we keep his word. And then verse six, which is really just a different way of saying the same thing. If we walk in the same way Jesus walked. Now first, at least if you're like me, that seems off. That seems off because John has just finished saying, hey, Christians, don't sin, but you will. And so if assurance comes by obedience, by not sinning, is he just kind of setting a giant trap here? Like assurance isn't really possible because you're going to keep sinning and so therefore you're never going to experience assurance. That's not what he's saying here. I find it really helpful to picture this, what John's writing here, as two different spirals. One that spirals down and one that spirals up. The downward spiral goes like this. When you sin, advocate for yourself. And as you do, as you advocate for yourself, you won't actually be learning to trust the fullness of God's goodness towards sinners. You'll always be holding something back and not throwing the full weight of your sin upon him. And because then you're not really learning to trust his goodness, you'll start minimizing sin. You'll start lowering the bar. You'll actually start, you'll find yourself moving further away from obedience to God's commands. You'll start moving further away from the example of Jesus. It's scary to be close to the example of Jesus if we have to advocate for ourselves. And as you move further away, you'll be foregoing the assurance that comes by obedience. You get further from obedience, you get further from assurance at the same time. And without the assurance, then you'll, you'll be that much more inclined to the next time advocating more for yourself, fighting harder to make a case for yourself. And then over time, you'll trust the goodness of God less and less and around and around and down the spiral, you'll go. Does that describe you? Does that describe where any of you find yourself this morning? Often the people who seem most put together deep down are the most insecure. Often the most polished people, and this is absolutely true among Christians and in the church as it is outside, often the most polished people are those with the lowest levels of real assurance. You'd think it would be the opposite, but it's not. And this is why. When you advocate for yourself, you move away from obedience and therefore away from assurance. And instead, friends, we're, we're meant to spiral upward in this. We don't want to sin. We're trying not to. But when we do, because we will, we look to Jesus as our advocate. That, over time, helps us to really trust the depth of his goodness towards sinners. And as we discover that, that we can actually trust him with the worst of ourselves, with the darkest and the most shameful stuff, that actually helps us keep the bar high. We don't minimize sin or reduce God's standards. We actually step toward God's commands. We step toward the example of Jesus because we don't have to try to do it ourselves and meet it ourselves. We become that much more committed to pursuing obedience, which means that many more tastes of assurance as we step into it. So, Obedience brings assurance, and assurance is also fueling obedience and spiraling up. We're meant to spiral up in this. Now, most of us are afraid to actually let this whole process play out. 
if we're honest. Most of us are freaked out by this, by the idea of assurance specifically. And that's almost always because we think assurance will lead to disobedience. We, we think that assurance will actually disincentivize us or make us lazy and that we'll become a people of cheap grace like Dietrich Bonhoeffer described or see Jesus as a, as a get out of jail free card rather than our Lord and King and the one we're meant to obey. That's a fair concern. It's right to be sensitive to that. But again, what I would say to you this morning is you are robbing yourself from tasting the fullness of the goodness of God towards sinners. If you're afraid of assurance, then your obedience will be motivated by fear. That's the other option. That's the other option. You'll obey because you fear you're always just one misstep away from Jesus now standing against you and slamming the door of heaven in your face. And I want you to hear from me this morning, the gospel is way better news than that. It's way better news than that. The gospel is good news for sinners. It's that you will never be cast out, that Jesus does not lose one single person that has been put into his hand. Not one. And how different is a life of assurance-motivated obedience from a life of fear-motivated obedience? What, what if your parents were always ready to just kick you to the curb, kick you out of the family the first time you messed up? I mean, God have mercy. Some of you don't have to imagine that. Some of you have had family experiences that have been almost like that. Or like that exactly. But would that not affect your view of your parents? Would, would that not severely limit your ability to trust them? And would you not constantly be doubting their goodness? That's how some of us start to view our Heavenly Father. And if we do, it can't help but impact our view of God and our view of his goodness in other ways. So, so if that's the way we think God interacts with sinners, with us as sinners, well, how is God interacting with us when we suffer? Fear-based obedience actually forms you over time to think that suffering is always punishment from God, that there's nothing redemptive or good or purposeful in it. Or when others around you suffer, fear-based obedience forms you to be people who recoil from sufferers as opposed to people who run toward them. Or if God is about to strike them with a proverbial lightning bolt for their sin, you don't want to be standing near them. So you recoil and you move away from people who suffer. And if we obey from fear, will we not also just constantly be pressured more and more to lower the bar, to minimize our sin, to keep advocating for ourselves, to keep moving further and further down that spiral away from assurance? So let me just briefly bring this closer to home this morning. Some of you and some other Christians that you might know, you might be in community with, Christians certainly in our culture, have become way too comfortable not gathering with God's people to worship every week. And I understand that COVID altered in some dramatic ways, especially for some people, some of the rhythms and habits of our lives. I understand that. It needed to. But now on the other side of it, many have come to a place where we just call it good enough to gather once or twice a month. That's fine. That's good enough. I want you to hear from me this morning. That's not because you have this mature idea, this deep sense of assurance. It's actually because you've lowered the bar. It's actually because you've moved away from obedience. And I say that to you this morning, not to heap condemnation upon you. I say it for this reason. It's because you, in, in moving away from obedience, you are actually forming yourself with less assurance and a diminished view of the goodness of God. A diminished view of the goodness of God. I want you to have the fullness of that view of God's goodness. I want you to have all the assurance that is meant to be yours as a follower of Christ. 
Others of you, some of you have really given up in your life fighting against the besetting sin or sins that are there. The pride, the anger, the lust, the addictions, the love of money. And you just kind of made space for it to exist in some way. You've given it quarter. That's not because you have a deep assurance. It's because you actually don't have enough assurance. It's not because you have too deep of a sense of God's goodness. It's actually because you've lost your taste for the goodness of God. Men and women, there is infinitely more held out to you than a life of lowering the bar and calling it good enough. That's what I want you to hear from me this morning. When you sin, you have Jesus Christ the righteous as your advocate. You need not advocate for yourself. You have all the assurance of Jesus Christ the righteous advocating for you. And so even though it is guaranteed we will fail and disobey at times, we get to pursue obedience not from a place of fear, but from a place of assurance. And as we do, our sense of assurance just keeps solidifying and growing. This is the goodness of God to sinners like you and me. Advocacy and assurance. And so today, may you be reawakened to the beauty and the worth of what Jesus has done. The gospel is actually even better news than you even dared hope. And maybe you've gotten just a little bit of a, of a deeper taste of that this morning from, from what John writes here in 1 John 2. It's even better than that. And because of what Jesus has done and is doing, what he will do, would you look to him when you sin? Would you look to him as your advocate? And in him, would you find the assurance that you are meant to experience as one of his beloved children? The gospel is good news for sinners like you and me. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Lord, you you have given us a gift that we just can't even comprehend. And we think it's incredible news when we come to faith in you. Before we've had faith in you, we think, wow, how can we be forgiven for all that stuff that we did that was horrible in the past? You are even better than that. Because when we sin, we have Jesus as our advocate. And I pray we would see him as an advocate for us this morning. I pray that we would, even as we come to this table in a moment, we would taste the goodness of your gospel. And that we would see that you have not only cleansed us from our sin and forgiven us from our sin, but that coming this morning as we are, sinners that we are, you will meet us with grace. You will advocate for us even today. And you will fill us with an even deeper sense of assurance that your work really does count on our behalf. Form us in that way. Forgive us for advocating for ourselves. Help us to throw the full weight of ourselves, full weight of our sin upon you even now. We pray all that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.